Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, everyone, thanks very much for coming along. Today we have with us Dr. Juanita Elias, who is an ARC Future Fellow with the Griffith Asia Institute. And today we're going to hear about the impact of neoliberal economic policies and thinking on women in Malaysian society <coughs> and how these changes affect more traditional ideas on the role of women in society. So I'll hand over to you, and the context for the research that I'm going to present today is um, this very broad and wide range of research that points to the role that competitiveness promotion plays in uh, a broader politics of neoliberal economic governance. In particular, attention has been drawn in this literature to the role of indices of national competitiveness compiled by organisations such as the World Economic Forum, as well as broader a broader policy consensus promoted by international financial institutions concerning the need for states to attract and retain investment and talent in order to maintain national competitiveness. And the argument is frequently made in this literature that this policy consensus acts to shape state behaviour in ways that are compatible with neoliberal reform agendas. And... Most importantly, this emphasis on competitiveness is shown to go beyond traditional neoliberal policy prescriptions focused on things like deregulation and privatisation and towards a stress on the um, widening and deepening of neoliberal reform into a wide range of areas of public policy and indeed um, spheres of social life. Um, and it includes things like, for example, an emphasis on educational reform and labour market reform. My paper focuses on the gender dynamics of this policy shift, um, employing a case study from Malaysia, and looks to how a concern with both women's formal productive labour and also the household has been incorporated into understandings of competitiveness promotion. Specifically, I look at the way in which current, in current Malaysian economic planning and policy making, women in the household are conceptualised as untapped resources in the struggle to maintain international competitiveness. This concern with women in the household is, of course, reflective of a broader international policy uh, development whereby the mainstreaming of gender into international development thinking has emphasised quite instrumentalist arguments regarding the potential economic contribution of women to economic development and growth. The Malaysian government has certainly taken up these broad international policy themes, but it, this is not a straightforward story about the incorporation of so-called global policy norms at the local level, and my argument aims to highlight the tensions and resistances that are integral to this process. The policy outcomes to be described in this paper concern two deeply interconnected processes. First, there is a policy emphasis on the need to expand women's productive roles, in particular to increase levels of women's labour force participation in the Malaysian economy. And secondly, um, I point to what many feminist political economists term the marketisation of social relations of reproduction, that is, those everyday care and household activities that generally go unaccounted for in conventional economic analysis. And that's to say the household and household forms of labour are increasingly recognised as supporting economic development and growth, resulting in policies that emphasise things like the need to expand the market for paid domestic work, 
or on uh, expanding availability of micro-enterprise schemes that enable women to combine paid work with domestic duties. These policies are constantly brought into tension with deeply embedded social structures that are resisted both within and outside of the state. And of course, these embedded social structures include localised understandings of appropriate gender roles and identities and how these gendered social formations are cross-cut with localised understandings of ethnicity, religion and class. In the very long original version of this paper, I have a whole section which kind of charts the global policy consensus around uh, how um, women play an important role in maintaining economic competitiveness. And I'm not going to go through that in much detail in this paper. But in the longer version, I explore how a concern with gender and economic competitiveness has been increasingly taken up within influential sites of the global political economy. And it does... It is important to note that there is some very important statistical data that's produced by UN agencies as well as the World Economic Forum, which points to a correlation between um, economic competitiveness and gender equality. And this data is important. You know, it's emphasised, for example, by those seeking to get states and international organisations to take gender issues much more seriously in the work that they do. However, there are some problems with these highly macro-level correlations. Um, for example, the work of the feminist economist Stephanie Seguno has pointed to the fact that in many Asian economies, in those economies that have experienced some of the fastest levels of growth, they actually also have some of the highest levels of gender inequality. The most recently published uh, Malaysian 10-year plan document, for example, is overwhelmingly focused on maintaining competitiveness. This appears on page one of their planning document. And that they stress the need to move into high-tech, knowledge-intensive industries. Interestingly, uh, the report the, sorry, the 10th Malaysia plan presents Korea as the state that Malaysia needs to emulate in order to escape the middle income trap. And yet Korea is a state that performs exceptionally badly on any measure of gender equality. Indeed, it must be remembered that to a certain extent, the notion of national economic competitiveness is a very fuzzy and nebulous concept. Although international competitiveness benchmarking and indexing practices have served to frame state policy responses, there's also an extent to which state policymakers pick up the concept and use it in the most politically appropriate ways. So gender gets incorporated into the national politics of competitiveness promotion, I would say, in quite locally specific ways. So, for example, gender issues get emphasised in some policy, some policy arenas, in particular um, in areas of national economic planning, but often gender issues are ignored, um, particularly in terms of the actual implementation of economic policy. So turning now to um, the, a more detailed examination of the Malaysian case. Okay, so just some background information. Malaysia is probably one of the most successful um, developing economies in the world, which is a result of um, economic policies introduced from the 1970s onwards that sought to attract foreign direct investment into export manufacturing-based industries. However, facing a continued dependence on low-wage manufacturing industries and increasingly high levels of migrant labour, 
it has sought to place emphasis on building a competitive knowledge-oriented economy. And numerous, of sh- numerous studies have shown how state developmentalism in Malaysia depended on the availability of low-cost female labour to take up employment in the expanding manufacturing sector. A gender lens, I would argue, is equally useful in exploring the taking up of the competitiveness agenda in Malaysia, notably via a government focus on women's labour, um, highlighting how educated middle-class women in particular are a pool of underutilised and potentially highly skilled labour that might help drive the transition to a knowledge economy. So in what follows, um, I'm going to do the following. And first, I'm going to look at this link between uh, Malaysia's um, take-up of ideas of the knowledge economy. And no, Sorry, first of all, I'm going to give a bit more kind of background information where I talk about how Malaysia's taken up the idea of the knowledge economy as a way to drive economic competitiveness, but I'll be highlighting the ongoing centrality of ethnic-based politics to this policy shift. Um, And then I turn to look more specifically at the gender dimensions of this policy shift, firstly looking at um, issues of women competitiveness in the productive economy, focusing in particular on the issue of increasing women's labour force participation. I then turn to look at the ways in which the household is being reconceptualised as something that can service the knowledge economy. Um, And then finally... I'll provide a brief analysis of the way in which these policy directions both fit with and are brought into tension with debates over the appropriate role and position of women in Malaysian society. The emphasis on knowledge and competitiveness in Malaysian economic planning and policy making is not in any way a sudden policy shift. Um, We can go back to, for example, 1993, when the then Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed gave his speech, Malaysia, the way forward, um, often referred to as the Vision 2020 speech because of his stated aim, uh, which still is an aim of government policymaking in Malaysia, that the country will achieve developed country status by the year 2020. But following the, uh, the financial, sorry, following the economic slowdown that followed the 97 Asian financial crisis, there was a much uh, greater emphasis and urgency about trying to pursue uh, this knowledge economy as a way of escaping the, um, the so-called middle-income trap. Uh, the eighth and ninth Malaysia plans, which broadly cover the period 2001 to 2010, Uh, further emphasised the urgent need to develop a knowledge-based economy in order to remain competitive. And this focus has been reconfirmed more recently with the launch of the 10th Malaysia Plan, uh, which was launched this year and covers the period 2011 to 2015, and other uh, political economic policy instruments, which include something called the New Economic Model, which is an agenda-setting programme focused on the broad economic trajectory of the nation and particularly on how to achieve Vision 2020 and another document called the Government Transformation Programme which is an attempt to better coordinate the work of government departments around six key national results areas such as fighting crime and raising the living standards of low-income households. Economic development policy in Malaysia must be contextualised in terms of the country's ethnic politics in particular, the way in which since the 70s, economic policymaking has been guided by this thing called the new economic policy that sought to enhance the economic status of the country's ethnically Malay or Bumiputra population. Debates over economic competitiveness in Malaysia have therefore intersected 
uh, in interesting ways with these debates around the special status of the Malay population, and in particular around whether economic incentives and quotas for this population are at odds with processes of liberal reform focused on enhancing competitiveness and building a knowledge economy. The major thrusts of current economic policy making in Malaysia, these are the, the new economic model, the government transformation program and a tenth Malaysia plan are thus also set alongside this thing called One Malaysia, which is uh, basically a kind of a range of government programs and policies which are designed to build and enhance a sense of national identity. And uh, this picture on the slide here is taken from the government transformation program document um, to illustrate what this One Malaysia might look like, this kind of multi-ethnic one Malaysia where everyone loves each other and gets on so wonderfully. Nonetheless, in the 10th Malaysia plan, um, there's in many ways a reaffirmation of the state's commitment to protecting the special status of the Bumiputra population. For example, Chapter 4 of the plan devotes nine pages to the topic of enhancing Bumiputra economic participation. Recent internal political developments have seen a small yet significant movement of Malay voters away from their traditional political allegiances with the UMNO-led Farazan National Ruling Coalition, and the resulting political environment has led to significant increases in competition over the Malay vote, and thus diminishing the desire within the ruling coalition to jeopardise Malay votes, especially given the increasing levels of Islamic religious observance within Malay society more generally. Despite a long-term emphasis in Malaysian policymaking on a need to move towards a high-skill-based knowledge economy, the problem remains that these reforms are constrained by the extent to which the economy remains dependent on low-wage labour-based industries and um, has maintained this dependence through the use of selective migration policies into low-wage industries. Figures from 2009 suggest that out of a total workforce of 10 million people, 1 million of those people were, official, were officially classed as uh, migrant workers. However, this issue gets more complicated by the fact that there's very, very high levels of undocumented migration into Malaysia as well. So um, it's estimated that for every legal migrant in Malaysia, there's an illegal migrant as well. Um, and in the 10th Malaysia plan, there's issues, to, there's, it, there's schemes are set up to try and address this, for example, in terms of imposing a levy on employers who are recruiting migrant workers into low-wage, low-skill industries. And this is being done in conjunction with initiatives to combat illegal migration. And this currently takes the form of a foreign nationals management laboratory within the Home Ministry, which oversees illegal worker crackdowns. And I think these are quite interesting to consider because I think such practices reveal that whilst the drive, that they, what they reveal is that the drive for economic competitiveness is not a straightforward market rational program of economic liberalisation, but is in fact mediated by the state's role in maintaining exclusionary notions of citizenship in addition to exclusionary uh, notions of ethnic identity as well. In line with the government's focus on knowledge and competitiveness, it's clear that there's also been an increased policy emphasis on the role that women play in maintaining competitive advantage, with women's labour seen as an untapped resource in the pursuit of the knowledge economy. 
And this comes out quite clearly in the first two quotations on this slide from the 9th and 10th Malaysia Plans. <coughs> Despite the dominance of female employment in the economically important export manufacturing sectors of the economy, it's interesting note that, to note that overall female labour force participation rates in Malaysia are relatively low. The 10th Malaysian Plan, for example, draws attention to the fact that Malaysia's female labour force participation rate, which in 2009 stood at 46.4% compared to about 80% for men, um, is considerably lower compared to regional neighbours. So uh, Thailand has a 70% female labour force participation rate, Singapore 60.2% and Indonesia 518 The desire to increase women's labour force participation is frequently presented as a way of lessening dependence on migrant labour, as the quotation from uh, Mahathir from 1995 clearly illustrates. This is quite a problematic assumption, though, because, first of all, many of the jobs that are currently performed by migrant workers are largely unattractive to Malaysian citizens, and significantly female migrant labour is overwhelmingly concentrated in domestic service employment, an exceptionally low-paid, low-status form of work that has come to be constructed as a form of work performed exclusively by foreigners. Secondly, it also rests upon a conceptualisation of work as formal productive employment, overlooking the roles that women perform within the household, and also the fact that many women are employed in irregular and undocumented forms of work in order to supplement household income. So, for example, um, many women are employed... Um, as garment subcontractors or um, involved in direct selling kinds of activities. Concerns about the low levels of female labour force participation also focus on the fact that many highly skilled and educated women leave the workforce once they start to have children, Um, and that's something which comes out in the final quotation on that slide. And this concern is compounded by the fact that Malaysia actually has very high levels of women entering higher education and currently stands at around 60% of overall Enrolments. So a number of strategies are discussed in government policy documents, in particular in um, economic planning documents, concerning how to increase women's labour force participation. These include things like, um, in the ninth plan, um, there's an emphasis on promoting flexible working hours, more flexible employment opportunities such as telework and homework, and the provision of workplace crushes. The 10th plan also highlights the role that childcare provision can play in addressing this trend, and recent government pronouncements have um, yet again called for women to have access to more flexible forms of work. In trying to explain why Malaysia has such low levels of female labour force participation rates, part of the explanation lies in expectations regarding women's traditional household roles, and this is something which is emphasised in Myla Stevens' work where she talks about how notions of domesticity have come to define perceptions of middle-class Malaysian womanhood. But there are also important material disincentives for women. The fact is that women tend to be crowded into lower-paying occupations such as shop work or clerical work and recent data has shown the clear persistence of a gender wage gap and the operation of workplace glass ceilings, in particular um, salaries that women command in uh, senior managerial positions are considerably lower than that men are earning. The decision taken by many women to exit the labour force in order to have children must also be set against the fact that there exists little state support for women's socially reproductive work. 
The tenth plan claims that one of the achievements of the ninth plan period was that 436 registered childcare centres were established at workplaces. However, a closer look at the data on childcare provision in Malaysia reveals that very, very few children under the age of four are cared for in childcare centres. And this is quite interesting because Childcare centres are designed to cater for the 0-4 age group. And then in the 4-6 age group, you have something called preschool. And enrolment in preschool is almost universal, and it's increasingly free. So this suggests that it's the lack of availability and cost of childcare for the 0-4 age groups that are major factors in these very low enrolment levels. Figures from the National Population and Family Board Survey of 2008 found that over half of all parents aged under seven relied on childcare provided by family members, and this was usually the child's mother. In addition to inadequacies in childcare provision, statutory maternity leave provision in Malaysia, which is currently 60 days, lags behind neighbouring states such as Thailand and Indonesia, where it's 19 days, and Singapore, where it's 116 days. I've put this, photo, this picture up on the slide because I found this quite interesting. This is a recruitment advert for Citibank in Malaysia, which appeared on the front page of the job supplement of um, one of the major newspapers, uh, in which it's trying to attract female employees by drawing attention to the fact that they actually do offer 90 days uh, maternity leave, but that's actually very, very rare, especially in the banking sector. Uh, challenging discrimination in ways that breaks the glass ceiling for women has featured prominently in government policies aimed at increasing the number of women in decision-making positions in the public service to 30%. And this is a target set out in the 10th major plan. should be noted, however, that when I was talking to <coughs> officials in Malaysia, they actually said, we have actually already achieved that 30% of women in decision-making positions. It's just that there hasn't been any official pronouncements about that just yet. But what is quite interesting is the way in which what's mentioned in the 10th Malaysia plan which is a commitment to increasing the numbers of women in decision-making positions in the public service to 30%, is also used to try to put pressure on the private sector to increase numbers of women in decision-making positions. So um, this is something that has been emphasised in speeches made by the Minister for Women, Community and Family Development, for example. Whilst highly educated women working in professional forms of employment are the clear target of the 30% decision-makers strategy, another important strand of government gender and development policy-making concerns women's role in alleviating socio-economic inequality via micro-enterprise development. Uh, and the stated aim is that by 2012, an additional 4,000 women entrepreneurs will be created. These policies demonstrate how women socially reproductive roles are being reoriented and transformed through processes of marketisation. And so um, what I'm going to do now is overview this policy emphasis before turning to um, examine um, in the final section of the paper other ways in which household roles are being transformed, in particular in terms of the rise of foreign domestic worker employment. So um, in government documents, microenterprises conceptualised as fostering inclusive socio-economic development by drawing marginalised women into the productive economy and has the added advantage that it enables women to combine paid work with their socially reproductive responsibilities. Interestingly, alongside poverty alleviation, microenterprise development also serves another important government objective central to the localised politics of economic competitiveness. 
This is the development of a culture of entrepreneurship amongst the ethnically Malay population. So in Malaysia, debates around entrepreneurship are deeply rooted in ethnic politics that characterize economic policymaking. A core objective of the new economic policy, for example, was to dismantle the association between economic activity and race, a commitment that resulted in the government strategies to, bo to boost Bumiputra corporate ownership and also cultures of entrepreneurship. So the tenth plan highlights the role that microenterprise can play in enhancing Bumiputra economic participation. Interesting, though, um, the anthropologist Patricia Stone, uh, Sloan, sorry, who conducted uh, research amongst urban Malay groups in the 1990s into um, the issue of entrepreneurialism. She found that the term entrepreneur was utilized exclusively to those Malay, usually male, business success stories in the modern urban corporate sector and was specifically not applied to things like people running food stalls. So the extension of the racialized language of entrepreneurship to the development of poor women-run micro-businesses indicates the extent to which global politics of economic competitiveness comes to be grounded in the everyday ethnically-based politics and practices that characterise Malaysia's political economy. There's a whole number of ways in which micro-enterprise initiatives have been criticised by both um, feminist and non-feminist scholars, drawing attention to things like there's often an overstatement in terms of their ability to develop, deliver pro-poor development outcomes. They're very important in supplementing household incomes, but they certainly don't foster the wider cultures of economic entrepreneurialism, which are envisioned by policymakers, let alone develop into larger-scale businesses. In the Malaysian context, critics have talked about how many of the very poorest groups in society, such as um, Indian plantation sector workers or Orang Asli indigenous groups, simply don't have... Uh, the financial literacy to gain access to micro-enterprise schemes. And this kind of chimes with a general critique that's often raised around micro-enterprise that they often serve to exacerbate inequalities amongst the poor. The household realm is also a central site of contestation over the role of foreign domestic workers in Malaysian society. Maids, as they're generally referred to, are exempt from it the 1955 Employment Act, which basically means they're not considered to be workers. And they're a group that are overwhelmingly dominated by women from neighbouring Indonesia. This is despite the fact that um, Indonesia's had a ban on uh, women were moving to Malaysia to work as domestic servants for the past year or so. The availability of low-cost domestic workers in Malaysia is recognised by policymakers as playing a role in attracting and retaining highly skilled workers. For example, in the 10th Malaysian plan, they talk about how people moving to Malaysia are now going to be allowed to bring their maids with them. And this is also, being take, this is also taking place alongside measures to remove limits on the employment of expatriate spouses, uh, which is quite interesting. Uh, previously, spouses have been banned from working in Malaysia. And this indicates the extent to which the development of the knowledge economy is accompanied by the assumption that society's socially reproductive work can be performed by low-cost foreign female labour. It's also interesting that whilst most employers who employ low-cost migrant labour are going to be discouraged from doing so through the imposition of levies, this levy will not be applied to employers of domestic workers. 
Of course, the employment of foreign domestic workers by both Malaysian citizens and non-citizens is in part related to perceptions of class and status, that is, the association of having a domestic worker with having attained uh, middle-classness. But also, more fundamentally, it reflects the lack of social and welfare services noted earlier. Foreign domestic workers remain a deeply stigmatised group subject to a range of repressive practices by employers which are effectively sanctioned by the state. So they effectively constitute a key group of vulnerable and unprotected workers who are kind of invisibly providing the flexible, low-wage, socially reproductive work so central to Malaysian state's pursuit of economic competitiveness and the growth of a prosperous middle-class society. A central contradiction in the official discourse around the increased emphasis around incorporating women in the household more thoroughly into uh, economic development is that the increased emphasis on women's productive contribution to the knowledge economy is that despite recognising this, women are still principally framed by the state in their role as homemakers. Um, And this is an issue that came through very clearly in interviews that I conducted with uh, a number of officials in government ministries, which included the Economic Planning Unit and the Ministry for Education, who clearly argued against the need to increase women's labour force participation. And this highlights the way in which, despite the rhetorical emphasis on women's role in promoting economic competitiveness, these ideas are challenged and resisted even within the state, Such challenges are inevitable given the way that women's role in economic competitiveness is constructed around two competing discourses. On the one hand, one that stresses her productive capacities as a worker or micro-entrepreneur, and another that constructs women's socially reproductive work in terms of women's traditional roles within Malaysian and often more specifically Malay society. And yet this second traditionalist discourse is utilised to serve agendas of economic modernisation and competitiveness. Thus the family and the household are presented as a key site for the reproduction of economically productive Malaysians, which comes through quite clearly in the uh, first quotation on this slide. Women's economic increased, sorry, women's increased labour force participation is often presented as an economic necessity, but concerns have been raised that women will neglect their role in the social reproduction of labour And these fears are compounded by the increased reliance on foreign domestic workers. The Women, Family and Community Development Minister, for example, recently expressed fears that the family institution in Malaysia was no longer functional, and the rest of the quotation is provided on the slide. The 10th Malaysia Plan highlights the need for programmes that instil character-building and family values that will focus on strengthening marriage and promoting equitable sharing of resources, responsibilities and tasks. These include schemes such as pre-marriage run guidance programmes, something called Smart Start, which is tailored to suit the needs of particular ethnic groups, and the Parenting at Work programme designed to support young parents. It should be noted that, however, that despite the use of the gender-neutral language of parenting here and the emphasis on shared responsibilities in marriage, these programmes need to be set alongside the widespread assumption that it is women who take responsibility for the household. Such programmes are a response to declining levels of fertility and increased levels of delayed and non-marriage in what was once a universal marriage society. Whilst these trends are fairly fairly uniform across all ethnic groups, it's notable that these changes have been most recent amongst the country's Malay population. 
Malay women in particular uh, become targets in strategies that link the increased emphasis on the household in government policy making to a broader moral agenda through a concern with family values. Building and strengthening the family is presenting as aiding the development of a moral and ethical society and enhancing national unity. The National Population and Family Development Board's work on strengthening the family, for example, tends to point to the central role performed by women in supporting values that preserve Islamic ideals. So the increased reliance on women's formal labour force participation has generated tensions over how best to incorporate the reproductive economy more thoroughly into state development policy making. These are shown to stem from state discourses that simultaneously emphasise both the productivity and the domesticity of women. For example, the emphasis on microenterprise as a potential tool in the development of an indigenous entrepreneurial class rather overstates the wealth-generating potential of microenterprise. And it was also shown in the paper how the desire to increase women's participation in the formal economy is accompanied by the rise of subordinated and racialized forms of paid domestic employment as migrant domestic workers increasingly take on society's socially reproductive work. These tensions between the productive and socially reproductive economies are also manifested in terms of how the state has responded to these challenges. For example, despite commitments to ending workplace discrimination and breaking the workplace glass ceiling, there is an effective siloing of women's issues within one ministry, that's the Ministry for Women, Family and Community Development, and this has also meant that these issues have entailed inadequate institutional responses. More significantly, the persistence of traditionalist understandings of women's family roles and responsibilities within the state underscores the extent to which economic restructuring remains embedded within localised gender ideologies, which are also, of course, cross-cut with notions of ethnicity and religion. So an increased emphasis on women's role as productive knowledge workers potentially conflicts with government policies to emphasise wives' and mothers' responsibilities in supporting productive, morally upstanding and increasingly Islamic citizens. In many ways, Malay Muslim women have come to play an important symbolic role in these debates. For me, some of the themes that I've talked about in this paper fit quite clearly with the claim made by the social anthropologists Joseph Nevins and Nancy Lee Peluso that increased processes of commodification in Southeast Asia, including labour commodification, do not generate a smooth process of capitalist transition, but unleash contestations and unintended consequences. So economic reform not only entails particular state-endorsed roles and responsibilities for women as formal formal workers, it also necessitates an emphasis on the family, the household, and the politics of domestic labour. And as I tried to highlight in this paper, these are issues that demonstrate how the pursuit of economic competitiveness is not a straightforward process of market integration, but is in fact mediated by the extent to which the economy remains embedded in a deeply gendered social context. All right, thanks very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.